This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Amen. Please be seated. It's good to see all of you today. Our text this morning as we continue to worship through the study of God's Word is Psalm 16, the 16th Psalm. I appreciate so much Matthew uh, stepping in for Pastor Ryan to lead our our singing, and I appreciate so much Pastor Adam. I love Pastor Adam, and God is blessing him and, and the ministry of College students here at, at Prince, it's a joy to, uh, to serve with him. Well, the Georgia Bulldogs did something yesterday that uh, has never been done before. They capped off an undefeated season for the first time in history, back-to-back, undefeated, 12-0 regular seasons. And I have to tell you, I'm kind of enjoying it. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of nice to get up on Saturday and turn on the TV and not even know who George is playing, but just feel like whoever it is, George is going to relentlessly destroy them. My relationship with Georgia football has not always been that way. I grew up under the tutelage of Vince Dooley and Larry Munson, who both were very good at what they did, but who both were publicly incredibly pessimistic. And so if Georgia was undefeated, they're 8-0 on the season, and they have what we would call a cupcake game coming up the next Saturday. They're battling the fighting groundhogs of Northwest Montana State Technical Institute. Vince Dooley's going to tell us on Sunday afternoon, this, this is going to be a uh, an insurmountable obstacle for our, our football team. And, and, and even though the Fighting Groundhogs have not won a ball game in three years, uh, their kicker is an All-American, and, and they, they have what, what may be the best kickoff team in the history of college football. And, uh, in, in fact, it, it's, it's such a good kickoff team that I, I have no idea how we're going to win. And that's all you hear all through the week. This is an amazing team. It's an undefeatable team. And so by the time you get to Saturday, you just, you feel like you're defeated before the game ever begins. And the game begins and, and Georgia's winning 35 to nothing at halftime. And you're about to receive the second half kickoff. And Larry Munson comes on the radio and he says, oh, the clouds have rolled in and old lady luck has turned against us. That kickoff team for the fighting groundhogs has just trotted onto the field. And we're doomed. And so I I just kind of grew up thinking that if you're going to be a Georgia football fan, you are just accepting a life of misery. And if if you happen to win the game, it was just because old lady luck smiled on you and you really didn't win the way you should have. And if you lost, well, that's, that's just the way it goes. And for, for many of us who, who are older and who grew up with, with that experience, watching a football game was, was more endurance than enjoyment. 
And, and unfortunately, I, I think that a lot of people have that mindset when it comes to Christianity. When, when they think about walking with Jesus, when they think about living the Christian life, it, it's more about just enduring rather than enjoying. And when they think about what it means to be a, a Christian, what they think about is really an exhausting, dutiful life of obligation. Well, in Psalm 16, David is going to introduce us to a joyous relationship with God that calls for us to enjoy his presence. And if we will hear and heed his call, we will find that walking in his presence is fullness of joy. So we want to look at Psalm 16 and we want to to see a couple of truths. First of all, we want to see God's invitation to enjoy him. We want to see the invitation to enjoy God. And that invitation, as we will see, is an ongoing relationship that God calls us to in which we genuinely enjoy him, not just one hour on Sunday morning, but every day of our lives. And it's a good God-honoring pursuit to pursue joy in him. Then secondly, we want to consider the instruction that David gives us to help us enjoy the presence of God, to help us understand that enjoying God really comes from understanding who God is and what he's like, that he is a God who is good and great and gracious. And this is, there is joy and, and delight as we experience God, as we enjoy God, and as we expand his presence. So let's, let's look at the text and see what David tells us, the 16th Psalm. David says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, may the Lord bless his word. So here's King David. Well, we don't really know if he's king yet, but David is in some unknown time of adversity. Maybe he's out in the wilderness. He's fleeing from Saul before he became king because Saul irrationally hated him and wanted to destroy him. Maybe he's out in the wilderness because he's been deposed by the coup that was led by his son Absalom and Absalom wants to kill him. And so he's out running from, 
from the forces of Absalom. Maybe he's on the battlefield preparing for battle against the Philistines. But whether he's in the wilderness or are on the battlefield, at this point in David's life, David is living without the comforts of the palace. He's, he's living without the authority of the throne. He's living without the help of, of servants. He, he's all alone with God. And, and in these moments when he's all alone with God, he finds joy and satisfaction, delight and pleasure in God's presence. And so he realizes this is, in fact, how God wants me to live. This is how God invites me to live my life, walking with him and enjoying him every day. So this is the invitation to enjoy God that we want to, first of all, see. So David sets this up really with a contrast. Look with me at verse 4. David says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So David recognizes that there are people in his day who are seeking delight and satisfaction and pleasure in the things of this world. That's not an uncommon thing. What was true then is true now. Our world is full of people who are trying to find satisfaction and delight and joy in the things of this world, whether it's people or, or possessions or pleasures or experiences. They're giving themselves wholeheartedly to the things of this world, seeking meaning and satisfaction. And David says that pursuit only brings multiplying sorrow. It brings growing sorrow. So why does sorrow grow? when we seek ultimate enjoyment outside of God? Well, quite simply because there is no ultimate delight or satisfaction in temporary things. So when a person finally attains that which they think will bring satisfaction and joy in their life, they discover that it's temporary at best. The relationship ends. The possession is destroyed. The gold rust, the possessions fall away, the experience ends. It all ends because the Bible says in First Timothy two, or excuse me, First John two seventeen, this world and its desires are passing away. And when those things pass away, what's left? Only an increased emptiness remains. Only the ultimate can satisfy ultimately. Only the eternal can satisfy eternally. So David, by contrast, seeks his delight in God himself. So look what he says in verse 9. He says, my heart is, is glad. My heart is my, my inner man. That's our, our mind, our will, our emotions. And he says, it's glad. That is, I'm finding real delight and pleasure in my mind, my will, and my emotions. He says, my whole being rejoices. That, that phrase, my whole being, literally means my glory. So when we think about God's glory, what is that? The glory of God is the sum total of all of his attributes. The glory of God is all that God is in and of himself. So what David is saying is, in and of myself, the sum total of who I am is rejoicing, which is a word that literally means to run around with excitement. So if, if you want to know what that means, go to YouTube and type in UGA fans after the national championship. And you'll, you'll see multitudes of videos uh, of people in the moment like this. 
And then a pass is thrown, and number five intercepts the ball. And you'll see those people go like this. And then number five streaks down the field. And the closer he gets to the goal line, the more of this there is. And when he scores, there's running around with excitement. That's the embodiment of rejoicing. And David says, with my whole being, I'm running around with excitement. With all that it was in me, there is unmatched joy. There's immeasurable delight. There's unfading satisfaction, even in times of adversity and difficulty. So what brought David to this place of inexplicable enjoyment? Well, it's God himself. He finds this in the presence of God. So look what he says in verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. The path of life is a common metaphor through the Bible that expresses the idea of living life as God intended. So the path of life is living life according to the covenant promises of God. It is living life with God. So as we live our life trusting and following Jesus, we are in his presence so God himself walks beside us and he himself is our joy because he's the source of all joy. So instead of multiplying sorrow, we experience ever increasing joy that we live in every day, not just temporarily, but forevermore. Now this is the invitation that God extends to each of us. God says to us, Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Pastor Josh has reminded us over and over again of that call of Jesus to Laodicea where he says, I'm knocking. Will you allow me to come in and dine with you? So David is saying, God tells us, I want you to walk with me and the joy of my presence will overshadow your daily life. God is extending an invitation to us and he's saying, I want you to live in my presence and I want you to enjoy me. Now, admittedly, this concept is foreign to some people. In fact, there was a time in David's life when this was a, a foreign concept. There was a time when David was wallowing in the guilt of his sin. And he was not comprehending the loving forgiveness that God offered to him. This happened with the prodigal son when he found himself having wasted all of his inheritance and he's down in the pig pen eating the pig slop with the pigs and, and he doesn't realize the forgiveness that his father offers to him if he will get up and return. So that was a, a foreign concept and maybe for some of you today, maybe the idea of living in God's presence, when you think of God's presence overshadowing your life, it's it's generally negative. Maybe you're going through life thinking, I, you know, God's, God's just mad at me. Or God's out to get me. Or I, I've really messed up and I've messed up so badly that surely God can't love me anymore. Maybe you rightly understand that God is a God of justice. But you're not really comprehending that God is a God of mercy who through the blood of Jesus offers forgiveness. Maybe you rightly understand that God is a God of wrath, but you're not really seeing that God is a God of love whose wrath has been satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ so that God stands and offers you favor. Maybe you think about God's perfection and you realize this, a perfect God, which he rightly is, has a standard, which he does, that is too high for me. 
but you've not understood that his grace in Christ has provided goodness and righteousness that will stand in the day of judgment. And based on the work of Christ, he accepts you and affirms you. Maybe today you're carrying a heavy load of religious rules. Maybe today you're living under the unbearable burden of not having done enough. Maybe today you've been carrying unnecessary guilt because of supposedly unforgivable sins or, or past failures. And listen, all that God wants to say to you is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest in your souls. Maybe we need to hear the words of Lewis Allen who said, life in Christ is not above all a set of commands to obey externally, but the inward work of the Holy Spirit to remake our hearts and our minds. So we're gonna hear this invitation to allow the joy in the presence of God to overshadow our lives. Maybe we need to transform our thinking so that we begin to grasp the fullness of the love of God in Christ Jesus. The 2010 movie Inception was one of my favorites. A lot of people hate it. A lot of people love it. It's a really weird movie. It's, it's, it's about Leonardo DiCaprio who, who has the ability to, to enter into people's dreams. And, and when he's in people's dreams, he can plant thoughts that when the person wakes up will change the way they think and therefore change the course of action. And it's, it's all about corporate espionage. It's, it's getting into corporations through people's dreams and changing the way they think. And the character that's played by Killian Murphy is a guy named Robert. And the whole movie is about Leonardo DiCaprio getting into Robert's dreams to change one thing. That Robert has labored under the idea that his father hated him and disapproved of him. And they wanted to plant this seed of a thought that actually his father loved him and approved of him and was proud of him. And when that thought began to germinate, it changed Robert's life. It changed his decisions and it changed the actions. And I think that's the heart of what so many of us need to experience. We need to change our thinking to understand the truth that God can be enjoyed because God is immensely enjoyable. And that doesn't happen by science fiction. It doesn't happen by the magic of Hollywood. It happens by us simply spending time with God in his word and allowing his spirit to transform our thinking so that we see him as a good and great and gracious God who calls us with favor to a life of joy in his presence. This is exactly what David is trying to express in the 16th Psalm. So let's work back through this text and and think about the instructions that, that David gives us to enjoy God. And basically it's this, that throughout this psalm, David is, is focusing on the being and the attributes of God. And David is saying, listen, it's who God is and what God is like that draws us into a relationship of enjoyment. And we see that God is good and great and gracious. So, so we see, first of all, that David 
was consumed with God's goodness. David was consumed with God's goodness. Look at verse one. Preserve me, O God. The idea of preserving is, is the idea of a night watchman who is patrolling the grounds, who is diligent and vigilant, who is never sleeping. He's watching through the night. So David is saying, listen, I need, I need shelter and I need protection. And so I'm coming to God because God is always on watch. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is also my delight. David has, has excellent relationships. He has good friendships. He has delightful experiences with the people that he knows. Why is that? Well, it's because of God. These relationships are happening with who? The saints. That is those who are set apart to God. So what David recognizes is when I put God first, when I delight in him and other people are delighting in him, I enjoy all the aspects of life that I share with them. So David has real relationships based upon his enjoyment of God. Look at verse five. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion. So, so imagine the people of Israel, they've, they've come in under Joshua and they've conquered the land. And after they've conquered the land, God gives them security and peace. And the first thing they begin to do is to apportion the land, to divide up the land among the tribes. And that was the hope and dream of, of every Israelite. This, this was the promise going all the way back to Abraham. It's called the promised land because the covenant promise is tied directly to the land. And so receiving a portion of land, receiving a plot of land was, was what these people had dreamed about all their lives. Well, what does David say? David says more than the land, which symbolizes a covenant relationship with God, I actually have God himself. I'm not putting my hopes and dreams on a piece of land. I'm putting my hopes on God. God himself is what has been apportioned to me. Look what he says. He says, the Lord is my cup. The cup is a metaphor that expresses the source of blessing. We would think of a, a cup and all those blessings are in the cup. And we drink the cup. It's so we are receiving the blessings of God. And so all the people of God are standing around there talking about all the stuff that God has given them. They're talking about all the blessings that fill the cup. And David says, listen, you're talking about what fills the cup. I have the cup. I have a relationship with the one who puts the blessings in the cup. I have a relationship with the one who is the cup. He is my greatest blessing and everything else flows from him. I hope, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and I, I hope that part of your Thanksgiving was at least pausing to think about the blessings that, that you've had this past year and to understand that those blessings come from God. And I hope, secondly, that, that you understand that you receive those blessings from God because, because you know him. And I hope further that you understood that if you know him, then he is the blessing. He's the greatest blessing above any of the things that you're celebrating. So David says, he is my chosen portion. He is my cup. And then he says, he holds my lot. It is all that I have. The Lord who keeps watch through the night takes it 
and holds it securely. So the blessing of knowing God, my relationship with God is more secure than the money in the most secure bank vault. The God who ordains all things, the God who gives all things, secures and sustains all things. Well, look at verse five. In verse five, he said, or excuse me, verse six, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. So he, he's imagining there's a father who's preparing his will and he has a plot of all the land that he owns. And he has, say, four sons. And so he's preparing his will and he's dividing that plot of land into four for his sons. And he's drawing the lines. And as he's drawing the lines, you realize, oh, he just drew the plot that I'm going to receive. And you're like, wow, <laughs> he drew those lines in a really good place. Thanks, Dad. I'm going to get a really good plot of land. So he says, everything that I receive is being given to me by God. It's a really good deal, and it's coming from God. And what's important is not the land, but the fact that my father is giving it to me. So what David is saying over and over again is, I have treasure, but I know the giver of treasure. And it's because I know the giver of treasure that I have a beautiful inheritance. And this is his point in verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So David is saying, look, God is the source of all the good. The protection, the provision, the inheritance, the land, the blessing. Everything that has come to me has come to me because God is good. As James says in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights in whom is no variable or turning or shadow of turning. You remember when Jesus talked about the goodness of God in Matthew chapter 7? And, and he, he said, how many of you being evil, that is being self-centered by nature, if, if your son comes to you and desires a, a loaf of bread, you're going to give them a stone? Of course not. If they come to you wanting a fish, you're going to give them a snake. Of course not. And Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven delight to give good gifts to those who love him? God is good. And David recognizes the goodness of God in his life. All of the blessings that have come to him are because God is good. And the best thing about this giver of good gifts is that we know him and he is good. So in Psalm 34, 8, David said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And what David has done throughout his life is he's tasted God's goodness. And now he comes to the point of realizing God is so good. I am consumed with his goodness. And it was because he set his heart upon a God who is good that he realized this is a relationship of joy. Notice secondly in verses 7 and 8, David was not only consumed with God's goodness, David was comforted by God's greatness. Look at verse 7. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. David trusted God's counsel because he knew that God knows all things, ordains all things, sustains all things, directs all things. So 
So David could say with the Apostle Paul, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So look at verse 7, the latter part. In the night also my heart instructs me. So David is, is comforted by the greatness of God's power and wisdom and, and knowledge. And so he says, even at night, I, I'm, my own heart instructs me. Now listen, he's not saying I'm listening to God sometime and I'm listening to my heart sometimes. As a general rule, it's not good to listen to your heart, no matter what Disney tells you. We need to listen to the Lord's counsel. And what David is saying is, he says, I have heard the Lord's counsel. And, and, and the idea is that, that my heart is encouraging me and admonishing me based upon the advice that God has given. I'm so enthralled with the wisdom and the understanding and the power of God. I'm so enthralled with the greatness of God that I'm saying, yes, what he has said is right. I'm going to follow his way. So I'm not, I'm not laying, lying in bed at night thinking about what would my life be like if I had another spouse or if I had another job or if I lived in another place or if I had, had more money. I, I'm, I'm seeing where the greatness of God has led me and I'm seeing the wisdom and the knowledge that God God has in his word and I'm encouraging myself I'm speaking to myself I'm admonishing myself if God said it we sang it we believe it so look at verse 8 in verse 8 he says I have set the Lord always before me so he says I've given priority to God I am acknowledging God as my sovereign as my guide as the Lord over my life and as I set him before me and follow him, trusting his greatness, what happens? I will not be moved. We had a, a very dear friend when we lived in the Philippines, and she was a professing believer. And I, haven't, I, I really didn't have any, any reason not to believe that she was a faithful believer. Uh, but one day, she, her, her baby was sick. And uh, she came to us asking for some money. And we asked her why she needed some money because if she wanted to go to the doctor, we would gladly take her to the doctor. And she said, I'm getting up an offering because I'm going to see the local shaman, the local witch doctor, to see if he can call upon the spirits to rid my child of this disease. I was stunned because I thought, here, here is someone who absolutely professes to trust the greatness of God when it comes to eternal things. But then in the day-to-day -day rub of life, she's fleeing from God and going to evil spirits for deliverance. But we're the same way, aren't we? We, we profess faith in Christ to save us, and yet... How many times are we really trusting our own wisdom, our, our own bank account, our own knowledge to get us through any particular situation? Well, David, David says, listen, I'm comforted by the greatness of God when it comes to eternal things, when it comes to everyday things. I'm drawing comfort and strength from the greatness of God. Can, can we say that? 
This morning, can, can, can you lie down at night? When, when you go to vote, when you pay your taxes, when you check your bank account, when you go to the doctor, when you send your kids off to school, can, can we say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving? Let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Can, can we say with Solomon in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. Today, can, can, can we say my God, my God who is sovereign, who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, who has created all things, ordained all things, sustains all things, this sovereign, great, powerful God who loves me and desires what's best for me, he can be trusted. That's where David was in this time of his life, even amidst adversity and difficulty, he said, I can trust the greatness of God. I will not be moved. And it was that trust in the greatness of God that moved him into a relation of enjoyment. The Thanksgiving before my father died, we were sitting around the table talking about the way that God had blessed us. And he was talking about how God had led him through his life and, and really inexplicable how God providentially had brought him to that place in his life, meeting my mom, having a business. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I really can't explain anything about my life except this. And he said, this is what I've learned in my life. I've just learned that God pretty much does whatever he wants to do. Now, for some reason, some people get scared by that. David was delighted by that because when you take the greatness of God and when you couple it with the goodness of God, you know what you get? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. David was drawn into an, a relationship of enjoyment because he was comforted by God's grace or greatness. And thirdly, in verse 10, we want to see that David was captivated by God's grace for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. We're, we're about out of time. In fact, we are. So I'm not going to look these up, uh, but I'm going to keep going. Acts 2, 25 through 28 is Peter. Acts 13, 35 is Paul. Peter and Paul both take Psalm 16, verse 10, and they apply it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and tell us that David was speaking prophetically of the coming Messiah. So, so the Hebrews did not personally know about the resurrection of Jesus, but they were looking forward to what God would do to secure eternal life for them. So while David was trusting God for deliverance from the immediate threat of death, he was also pointing to the ultimate victory over death that would be accomplished by Jesus Christ. He was cultivating the hope of eternal life that Jesus Christ would secure. And here is David, he's captivated by the fact that God would intervene in his life to deliver him both immediately and eternally. 
And so David is looking for that day when God will secure eternal life for him. And one day in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. And the Lord Jesus Christ came, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. He went to the cross and paid the penalty of our sin. And he was raised on the third day into this sin-soaked, broken world. Jesus came and he earned righteousness through obedience to the law and he paid the penalty of our sins on the cross but the father would not allow him to face corruption because God could not and God would not be defeated so he was risen and in his resurrection he conquered death hell and the grave forever what God has done through Christ is he's taken away death and he's given us life he's rolled away the darkness and he's brought light and Paul says in Romans 1, 3, that it is by the resurrection that Jesus Christ is declared to be the Son of God with power. David looked forward to a day when God would deliver him. And this Jesus who came into the world comes every day into condemned and alienated lives who are defeated by sin and trapped in darkness. And he brings the love and the light and the life of the resurrection. And David says, God is doing this as I look forward to what God's going to do. It's by his grace. God doesn't have to do this. God doesn't need to do this. It is out of grace that he chose to save us. For it is by grace that we've been saved. Through faith and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Listen, God chose to set his heart upon you. God chose to crush his son for you. God chose to raise his son up from the dead for you. God chose to justify you. God chose to redeem you. God chose to ransom you. God chose to reconcile you. God chose to adopt you. He chose to make you his own treasured possession. He chose to deliver you from death and give you eternal life. And he's done it through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's not because you've earned it. It's not because you've deserved it. It's because God from all eternity is a God of matchless, overflowing, overwhelming, infinite, amazing grace. This is who God is. And this is what God has done. And David is captivated by that grace. David looks into the future and realizes what God is going to do. And he's enthralled with this God who is unbelievably enjoyable because he is great and good and gracious. So David's instruction for enjoying God is simply to give us a glimpse at God's character. And David says, listen, if you'll just see God, you'll enjoy him because you'll learn that he's eminently enjoyable. In his goodness, in his greatness, and in his grace, there is joy and satisfaction and delight that he brings, and it's sufficient every day forevermore. And he invites you into that type of relationship. Now, last week, Pastor Josh, talking about experiencing the presence of God, said this is not a list, it's not a set of four steps, it's, it's really just determining that you're going to spend time with God. You're going to take his word and you're going to spend time with him. And I think David is just giving us one more step to that. We're going to take time to spend with God. But when we do that, 
We're not going to the Bible just for some inspiring story to give us a little pep on Monday. We're going to the Word of God to learn the truth about God. So that we're giving ourselves mind, will, and emotions to thinking about God. You know, when I was a little kid, the first prayer I learned was, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. By his hands we are fed, give us, Lord, our daily bread. Amen. My biggest problem with that is I couldn't figure out why food and good didn't rhyme. Did you know what that prayer taught me? That prayer taught me Psalm 16, that God is great and God is good and God is gracious. But you know what? I wasn't thinking about those theological truths about God. I was thinking about food. What I wanted to pray was, bless you, bless me, bless the meat, let's eat. I think sometimes we just, we come to the word and we're just looking for something about us. And David is saying, listen, come to the word for God. Come and learn what, what an amazing God he is. Come and be consumed with his goodness. Be comforted by his greatness. Be captivated by his grace. In just a moment, we're gonna, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We're going to have our time of response. And I just want to say, I, I think verse 8 is, is how we need to respond. Because I, I think that's really the first step. David says, I have set the Lord before me. I have set the Lord before me. And I, I really believe that's where it all starts. And, and if there is a response today... If the desire is, I, I want to spend time with God. I want to learn about God. I want to enjoy God. I, I think the first step of response is to say, today, I, I'm going to set the Lord before me. And every day, I'm going to set the Lord before me. Because with that decision comes the desire to learn about this God, to be with him, to spend time with him. And what, I, what I, I'm really praying and hoping is that as the people of God, we'll, we'll learn just to take his word and just, just behold him. Just behold him. Just behold his goodness, his greatness, his glory, and his grace. And allow him to show, so shape our lives and change our minds that our relationship with God becomes a fountain of never-ending joy. Would you stand with me and let's... Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.